touch them all, Joe. Today we have a special treat and challenge for the Backstage Project podcast audience. I challenge our listeners to find someone with the breadth and depth of experience and industry accolades as today's guest, Paul Graham. Paul is the Vice President and Executive Producer of Live Event Production at TSN, which is jointly owned by Bell Media and ESPN, for those who really weren't aware. Prior to joining TSN full-time 10 years ago, Paul was the Executive Producer or Producer of more sporting events than we have time to mention on this podcast. I distinctly remember my introduction to Paul one night during the London 2012 Olympic broadcast. We were in the control room in the main floor of the old Sportsnet studios at 9 Channel 9 Court. Once I actually joined TSN and Paul and I got the chance to get to know each other, our relationship took off from there. I'm really thrilled to have Paul join us for the podcast and welcome. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. It's it's great to be on board and great to chat with you and great to catch up. All right. Well, let's just get the conversation started then. And I wanted to see if it was possible to push your buttons. I know you're generally calm, cool, and collect in the kind of business that you're in, but I wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction to start. So I'm a Toronto boy through and through, and my family roots are actually from Montreal a little bit. And while I admire the Habs, I could never really cheer for them. And no chance I was cheering for them in 93 after the Leafs got knocked out by the Kings. But you're from out west. You're from Edmonton, to be specific. And in the spirit of kind of reconciliation of the country, I really would appreciate your perspective of trying to explain this disdain that I've come to know that Westerners have for the teams here in the East. What's that about? Well, it's probably a longer story than we have time for today, but no, I mean, I I think it's, you know, a lot of it goes back to uh, a lot of it goes back to the politics in the seventies when the, uh, when the old saying was out there, you know, let the Eastern bastards freeze. If you remember that one with the, you know, with the government, federally and provincially going at it on on oil uh but no i re- you know a lot of it just has to do with uh with with the west and a lot of people that way back when that moved out west were frontier people and kind of did things on their own and, and were very loyal and very passionate uh, to their teams and in edmonton and, and alberta specifically um you know quite a quite a storied time there when you think about um the 70s and the 80s and a little bit into the 90s with the professional teams out there and uh, with the success of the Oilers and then the Eskimos with their five great cups in a row and, and then the Flames ultimately winning the, uh, the Stanley Cup in, in 1989 and, um, and all that went along with that and, and the pride that, that comes from, from uh, the Western Canadian fans. And I think a lot of it, you know, they, they would turn on Hockey Night in Canada and they would see uh, games out of uh, Maple Leaf Gardens or games out of uh, uh, later Air Canada Centre, now Scotiabank. Scotiabank. They see a bunch of people in suits and ties and then they're basically just people that made a two-hour drive in from northern Alberta to watch the Oilers play or the Eskimos play, and, and they got all their gear on. So I think it's I think it's a combination, a little blue collar, white collar. But at the end of the day, um, everybody in the country, it's it's great to know that they're great sports fans and that they cheer for their teams. Well, looking at at the Oilers, uh, and you know, I was pretty young at the time, but still, I mean, who could not have been completely in you know, amazed by what those Oilers did? And and I know that. Early on in your career, you were you were a big part of that. Explain how you kind of got involved with the Oilers and and what that did to start off your career for you. Uh, well, it's you know I have a kind of a classic, uh, interesting story about how I got my start in the business. It's, uh, I'll try to keep it short, but uh, um, yeah, I was one of those guys in in my neighborhood growing up that I was kind of always the organizer, um, whether it was at school or around the neighborhood in terms of organizing sports and other events. 
it helped that I had a couple of brothers that were uh, sports fans themselves, namely in hockey and football. And it helped that I lived across the street from a hockey rink and a football field. So no surprise that those ended up being my two favorite sports. And then later on, when I went to, uh, to Nate in Edmonton, um, which was in the neighborhood, basically, uh, you know, I took an active role in a lot of the productions that were happening there. And, and one particular uh, project that we had on was, was covering the, the college hockey team. And I was uh, taking the radio and TV program there and, and had the, um, uh, the honor of being the producer and director back then. We didn't have a lot, a lot of staff to go around. We just sort of winged it um, on the local community channel there. And one of my teachers previously, a guy called Mike Haney, he, he had worked in the business as a director and, and was now teaching, but he didn't like it. And so we had an opportunity uh, to go back in the business to work at ITV, an independent station there. Uh, now global television and so he went back to work as a director and then as luck would have it um, the Oilers came into the NHL and in 1979 um, and the hockey night uh, Canadian sports network guys from out east were in town trying to uh, figure out how they would get the games on television and who would organize that and and uh, in one of the meetings Mike happened to be in they asked him hey do you know a guy that's kind of like a sports guy and knows a little bit about stats and a few things and he says yeah I, I know a guy so uh, not a word of a lie, I'm in, I'm in the classroom and, and there was actually a phone at the back of the classroom and the phone rings and it's, it's Mike um, calling into the classroom and I go take the call after the instructor said, calls for you. And uh, he said, there's a couple of guys here who want to talk to you about a, about a job. Um, and the one gentleman on the phone was Don Wallace, who at that time was working with legendary Ralph Mellonby. Um, and Don eventually would become executive producer on Hockey Night Canada. So it was a role he was, he was taking over. And he just said, hey, we might have a job for you as a stats graphic guy. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, I'm 100% interested. He said, well, we're having a, um, a rehearsal session tonight down at Northlands Coliseum. Uh, I want you to come. I want you to make it. And I go, well, that's, that's a bit of a problem because we have a hockey game tonight here at the arena. And I'm the producer and director and kind of doing a few things. And he goes, well, you want the job or not? And I go like, oh, I can't, I can't really leave. Like, of course I want the job, but I can't, I can't leave. And he said, well, you know, disappointing. And he basically hung up and I thought, wow, that's, that, that was kind of, I kind of missed that one. And then about 10 minutes later, he calls back and he said, well, when's your meal break? And I said, we're college kids. We don't have a, we don't have a meal break. Um, we, you know, we just kind of work through it and he goes, well, what's your best hour? And I said, well, probably between five and six, the game starts at seven 30. And, uh, so he, he picked me up, um, in a yellow Volkswagen van on the college steps. And it was driven by, uh, Luther Hove, who, uh, was a big shot at ITV at that time. And later went on to be president of super channel. And, uh, the two of them drove me down to Northlands Coliseum. And the first thing they said in the, in the van ride Don Walls turned to me and said, how do you spell Canadians? And I looked at him like, you know, like kind of sarcastically. And I said, you mean E-N? Because he was trying to trick me on Montreal Canadians as an E-N or an A-N. And then that was sort of the start of it. And then I uh, got a bit of a tutorial on a, on a graphics machine um, at that point. And then uh, that sort of led to many, many opportunities working on the older broadcasts. And so to, to, in a long-winded way to answer your question, that was, that was a great time to, uh, to be working when the Oilers won their first Stanley Cup in 1984 um, and to really be close with a lot of the players. I mean, we were all the same age group. Uh, it was interesting to, you know, to see Gretzky and Coffey and Curry and Kevin Lowe and Grant Fuhr and, and Glenn Anderson 
um, and see those guys grow up not only um, as hockey players on the ice, but in a lot of cases as as adults and, and individuals. So for anybody who was in that city at that time, it was a super exciting time because you you obviously had the success of the Oilers that everybody knows about. But uh, in Edmonton at that time, leading into that, the, the big team was the Eskimos because they were so successful as well uh, with the Warren Moon part of that group. And so you just had a, a whole stretch of, of years in the 80s where there was nothing but winning hockey games. You know, we talk about the, the, the East-West divide and fandom and allegiances in the country, but looking at the 80s, I mean, it was dominated by the West. And uh, thinking back as you were describing, you know, your experience being right in the middle of it, of course, I remember all of those names, you know, whether they're Canadian icons or just heroes in general. Um, what, what an amazing time to be, you know, to be in Edmonton, to be in Calgary when, when they won their championship. And maybe we'll get to it later in our chat today, Paul, but the, the psychology around how you got noticed at such a young age and you, know, you weren't even really in your career yet by, by these people who became legends and leaders in the business is a phenomenal story that maybe we'll have some time to talk about later. But before we get there, I mean, there's so much to talk about with you. So it's, it's, it's very difficult for me, you know, as the host to, to pick a few things, but I do know there are some areas of, you know, of your experience and, and, of, and of the, the magic that you've created for all, all of us to enjoy over the last 40 years that, that I want to pick up on. So earlier in our, uh, in our run here at the Backstage Project podcast, we talked to Rick Chisholm. It was actually our, our premiere episode. And as part of that conversation, Rick and I had discussed both of our admirations for what TSN had done and continues to do with the IIHF World Junior Hockey Championships. And I know you're extremely close with IIHF, so I was hoping you could shed a little more light on how that all came to be and the importance of Hockey Canada relationship with TSN. Uh, yeah, well, it's, I think it's, it's no secret to the folks that know me that uh, the World Juniors is something that's near and dear to my heart. And in my, invol my involvement uh, with it kind of comes in two pieces because I was involved early and then I, I, I went off to work with Hockey Night Canada for a few years and with the NBA on the Raptors and, and a bunch of other projects and then, and then came back and, and uh, jumped back on the, the bandwagon in, uh, in 2010 in, in uh, you know, conjunction with the Olympics in Vancouver and Whistler. But the early days were quite something. I, I'm, you know, I, when I look back at the growth of this tournament, uh, it, it really is amazing. Um, you know, we, we started out in 1991 with our first coverage in Saskatoon. I was not involved in that. Um, so actually, Rick, Rick actually was the director on that, uh, but I wasn't involved in it. And, uh, and I came in on the next year in, in 92 when it, uh, when it moved over to Foos in Germany. So the first time that TSN had it over in Europe. And, uh, and that, that began, I'd been to Europe a couple of times previously, but that began a very close love affair for me and my travels over in Europe that, uh, that I think are well documented with a lot of our folks at TSN, but uh, especially in the travel expense department. But in any event, uh, uh, you know, the Fusen uh, project was, was amazing when you think about it. Fusen is sort of a, a small mountain village uh, not far from Munich. Uh, picture, you know, picture kind of a Jasper or Banff or, or maybe even a, a Blue Mountain or Mont Tremblant, I guess, uh, type scenario. And, uh, and we went in there and we didn't even cover the first Canadian game. Uh, because the idea from a budget perspective was to pick up Canada a little bit later on in the tournament and then and then hopefully um, they would you know they would qualify for the gold medal back then there wasn't a, a quarterfinals there wasn't a, a semi or, or bronze and gold it was just you, you play seven games and best record wins gold well unfortunately that year even though Canada had um, Eric Lindros playing on the team and a, and a up-and-coming 
potential star goalie and Trevor Kidd and uh, and a forward. Uh, you know, they had Daryl Sador on the team and Scott Niedemar in the Hall of Fame, Paul Korea in the Hall of Fame. They had some great guys, but they they just couldn't put it together as a team and and actually finish sixth. And uh, they had an awful showing, but we had a lot of fun. And so, uh, you know, we we um, we basically it was there was only five or six of us from Canada over there. We had to work with uh, with a German crew that didn't know hockey very well. Uh, our facilities were slightly embarrassing. Uh, I have a quick story where uh, to go off topic a little bit, but we we stayed at a, sort of a, a lodge that was uh, run by a woman called Mrs. Pfeiffer. It wasn't a hotel; it was a lodge, and and she and she said, "I locked the door at eleven o'clock," and I go, "Well, you know, we're we're basically getting off the air and." And TV people like to go for a drink or two every now and then. So that's just not going to work. She says, just knock on the door and I'll come down and open it. So the first night we knock on the door about midnight. And the second night we knock on the door about one. And the third night we knock on the door about two. And every time she's coming down in her nighty, we've, we've awoken her. And then the next morning at breakfast, she hands me the key. And she just says, just open the door when you want. So there was lots of crazy experiences doing that tournament. But we learned a lot and and we learned, um, you know, me specifically learned, you know, an important lesson is that relationships is, is, is key in these tournaments. Um, and as it turned out, uh, a young uh, guy who went on to be to have a fairly successful career that worked very closely with me in that tournament with uh, then it was the Canadian Hockey Association was Bob Nicholson. And, uh, you know, everybody knows Bob's name. He's the top dog now with the with OAG, the Oilers organization, <clears throat> and for many years, um, head of Hockey Canada in a president role, and uh, for many years he's been a, a vice president with the IHF. Uh, and Bob and I to this day have a very strong friendship, and that and that helped um, you know move along the process of trying to grow the tournament. Our next um, you know next year, 1993. I'm not going to go through them all, by the way. Our next no, year, no. There's a lot. There's a long track record of success here and broadcast yeah. ratings. Our next year, 93, was was in Sweden, um, and that began the run of Canada winning five gold medals in a row. And so you got a real education on how to put that tournament together. With the first, with the first two being in Europe, um, actually, the first, yeah, the first three being in Europe. The following year was in Czech Republic, and then we came back to Canada, and everybody in Canada was expecting. Uh, you know, they, they got a taste of it in Saskatoon and, and now we're in Red Deer with games at Edmonton and Calgary and, and the tournament just started to explode in terms of, of interest and Canada won a third gold medal and that, that team that year was full of NHLers because of a lockout situation and then the following year uh, in Boston they, um, uh, they won their fourth gold medal. And that was the emergence of Jerome Gilna as a player. And so people started to see the, the relationship um, with their hockey stars building at a, young end, at a young age. And then the following year in Geneva, they won their, their fifth gold medal. Um, didn't have a big role, but it's a, a name that's in the news today. Um, a 16 or 17-year-old on that team was Joe Thornton. And, uh, and so Joe, you know, Joe started his hockey career based you know, in the World Juniors at that time. But I think I think the key to that tournament is that it, again it kind of comes in two stages. It was just getting it down the road and 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 starting to build the relationships and and uh, and get the coverage out there where where TSN was covering more games and trying to to make a budget work. Um, but back in those days, you know, there wasn't a lot of support at the home base at TSN. It was it was nobody's fault. Is that people went away on vacation at Christmas, and we would play reruns and best of shows over Christmas. And back then, you know, sports desk was on hiatus 
And so um, one of the things that, that then transpired was all of TSN really got behind the tournament. The, the TSN machine that, that is so well-respected and, and revered in the business right now got going. And from promotions to news to marketing, um, every element, sales and advertising got behind this tournament. And if it was, if it was up the first couple of steps, you know, that really got it up 10 steps where, where it really, really got going. Um, and then I think, you know, when we talk about eight, nine, 10 years ago, the, the key to the tournament was the growth um, internationally. And I, you know, I take great pride in a lot of that because again, it goes back to relationships um, and working with all the federations at the president level, whether it's Sweden, Finland, Russia, Switzerland, you know, the list, Czech Republic goes on and on and having those relationships to help to try to build the tournament. And then what goes hand in hand with that is the networks over in Europe that then pick up the tournament. And what's happened, you know, this, this tournament's always just been kind of this Canadian thing and we love sitting around at Christmas and with our family and watching the games and it's become our tradition. Um, well, it's starting to become and, and is now traditions in other countries. Uh, it's huge in Sweden. I mean, they do the same thing we do. It's huge in Finland. It's huge in Russia. Um, USA piggybacks uh, right with us. So, you know, this year is an example. Um, we're covering 28, all 28 games of the tournament. And Sweden, Finland, Russia, USA are, are taking every game. And then the, uh, the, the Slovaks and the Swiss and the Czechs are taking a number of additional games along with Germany and Austria taking games. And we even have countries picking up the, the feed that are not involved in the tournament, uh, like Belarus and, and Ukraine and, and working on a deal with Iceland and Spain. So it gives you an idea of how much this tournament has grown uh, in the 31 years that, that TSN has been involved. Well, so congratulations on that and continued success. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing property that I think as Canadians, we're, we're proud of it in general. I know the Canadian team hasn't done as well recently as they did for that stretch that you were mentioning, but we're always looking forward to the holiday tradition. You know, as a fan, you know, until that tournament existed, you know, there wasn't really that March Madness uh, or, the, you know, the, or the Bowl Championship Series in football in the NCAA that we could really look at, at and find the greatest stars in the game of hockey. You know, there's obviously the Memorial Cup, but it kind of coincides with with the NHL playoffs. And let's face it, not all the best players in the world are necessarily playing in the CHL. So that's where the World Juniors really rose for me in terms of its importance, because I knew that's where the best hockey is going to be played. So quickly changing gears more on the on the technical side for a second. Um, you and I, I think we've crossed over a few times in Las Vegas at a conference like NAB. This is where a lot of us broadcasting digital in the last 10 or 15 years gather to really see what's what's going on in the world and how to deliver a better experience to fans. And I know that you've been in countless demos looking at revolutionary tech that maybe hasn't even still found its way in the truck. But I've always been curious, you know, whether it was when I was working at TSN or, or to today, you know, as an executive producer, you know, how involved are you in telling the engineers you know, what to buy? You know, who's driving that innovation? Is it the network? Is it the property? Is it the advertiser? Is it the audience? Share what you can around how these decisions are made and how important these decisions are to the job of being the executive producer. Yeah, I would say it's a little bit of all of that. Um, you know, it, it, it comes in so many different ways. I mean, you know, as you know, it changes every day. <clears throat> I mean, technology is playing such an important role in our world now, particularly with COVID. So the idea of, of you thinking that I'm going to plan for something that won't change in the next year or two 
is long gone. It's like, will it change in the next week or two? Um, and budget budget clearly comes into a lot of uh, a lot of what we do, and and so and and we try to we try to you know <clears throat> discuss how this will work uh, with Dome Productions, who's our mobile supplier, and and what bells and whistles they're looking to uh, purchase, and, and you know internally at TSN and CTV up at our main plant, we uh, you know we have technology obviously within the plant, and you know is there is there a relationship there to use some of that, and then. Um, you know, so much of it is, uh, and this is something that's always been very important to me is that, um, new technology is great in so many ways, as long as it adds to the production and, uh, and doesn't become gimmicky in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, it's one of the interesting things I've always, I've always looked at is that sometimes you look back and in old sports shows, or you look at old game shows and you see crazy wipes and effects and you go, Oh my God, like, how was that ever cool? And because it looks ridiculous today, and it's no surprise when when you look at uh, films that uh, you know, apart from special effects, they really haven't changed. What's what's really been the standard forever has been a cut and a dissolve. It always stands the test of time. So um, so you know we can't lose sight of of the your ability to tell the proper story. And if technology and innovation can help you do that, then we're all on board with doing it. And I. Um, you know, I think I think of you know back over the years things that have changed our game, uh, the score bug. You know, where there was a time, you know, we we during COVID we've had to we've had to go back um, in many networks and show old sporting events, and you're watching their game, you're like, what's the score? Because you can't because it's not on the screen because it wasn't on the screen back then. I mean, back then we used to do hockey games. You were allowed to put the score up maybe once every five minutes. And the idea back then was that the viewer would stick around longer because he didn't he didn't know what the score was. Um, but now, you know, with the score bug and so much information that comes off of it, um, it's a game changer. And you see it in golf with the tracer. Uh, you know, what a brilliant innovation where you can now follow the golf ball and know how high it is and know how fast it's going. And you see in baseball when when you're looking over the home plate, the strike zone, and and what that does in terms of help educate you as, as part of a viewer. So, um, so we talk about innovation. Um, and, and again, it's in, in the mobile world, it's, it's a little tricky because you're, you're traveling things. Um, again, there's, there's cost implications. Uh, nothing, nothing basically happens without a lot of work going into it. And, um, and we, you know, we continue to have discussions about that and how we can, how we can make our shows better. And in a lot of cases, we think we do a pretty good job already but you can never uh, not be looking for the next thing. No, it's funny where you mentioned the, uh, you know, what, what used to be, I'm distinctly remembering, uh, you know, that Gilmore overtime winner against St. Louis in the 93 playoffs and how there was, there was an ISO cam on the clock. And after he scored that goal, you see the vibration in that little part of the, of the lower third where the clock was amazing how things, how things have progressed. Well, that that was one of the, you know, again, when you were producing back in the day, that was one of the, the rules is that within the last minute, it wasn't during the whole game, but within the last minute of the game, sometimes the last 30 seconds of the game, you had to make sure that you had the score clock recorded somewhere. So you could then show that effect if, if time had run out, um, you know, and it's laughable nowadays because it's, you know, it's standard practice with, with the score bug, um, in, you know, in all broadcasts really. So. Well, thinking a little more currently, I'm, and I'm not sure how much, uh, TSN has yet had to had to broadcast in you know spectatorless stadiums. But 
we're obviously at this point all very familiar with, with, with that experience. And we are starting to see some fans back in the NFL more specifically. Well, as a, you know, as an executive producer, as a fan, you know, I'm looking to get your opinion on, on what has transpired you know, over the last few months and, and which league you thought did, did the best job of, of telling the story of whatever segment of the season uh, they, they were able to run over the last few months. And, uh, and if you want to pick up on you know, any aspects of the production, which you think might, might linger um, just because of the reality of, uh, of the world and, and what's going on. Well, it, it's certainly been an interesting several months. Um, I've been lucky enough to be part of a, a group with, with SVG where a lot of my peers are on weekly calls where we, we discuss the world. And so, and how different sports are coming back and different companies and networks are, are facing that challenge. So, um, you know, in, in involved in listening and early discussions with the PGA coming back and, and uh, you know, involved in NBA and NHL and, and uh, NASCAR and you're, you're, you're getting information as everybody starts to come back in Major League Baseball and Major League Soccer. And, uh, and we were, you know, for a number of reasons, a little bit late into it just because of the, of the situation up here in Canada, but you, you hear so many different things, you see so many different things. And, and, and we, we all have a chance to see what's happened the last six months in terms of what's happened in venue. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that's clear uh, is that health and safety has to be, you know, uh, front of line in terms of everything we do and, and dealing with a lot of that right now is, as we look forward to the juniors and, and then curling coming up. Um, and you talk about, you know, bubble situations and, and all that goes along with that. But one of the things that's so evident is we miss the fans. And, and I don't think people realize that going in, how important the fans are as it, as it applies to the television coverage. And most sports include fans in their camera cut after a goal celebration or after a positive moment or a negative moment. And that all disappears. So how do you replace that? And one of the early things was this will be great because, um, you know, the fans drown out so much of the of the noise that happens on the pitch or the field or the ice or the court. And so we'll be able to hear more because that's always been one of our initiatives, especially in CFL is with live miking, is to get the audio closer to the fans so you can hear it. But then you realize that, well, there's a lot of language that goes on down there. Um, and, and so much of the ambience is, is lost in it. Um, so you have another challenge about, about making sure the sound is, is right within the, within the building. So you're not hearing the, the players curse or say something inappropriate. Um, so you've seen examples of, of a piped in crowd and chants and, and louder music um, that will drown out a little bit of that. But at the same time as a viewer, I want to hear more of that. So we've had to look at situations where censorship comes into play and delay comes into play so that language doesn't get out. Uh, you know, you've seen different camera angles in different situations. Uh, I think drones have, have uh, played a bigger part. Uh, you know, part of the issues previously with drones as part of production was they, from an insurance perspective and from a, a safety perspective, there was a reluctancy to, to fly them over the fans because, you know, it might fall down. Um, and, you know, even, even in uh, Toronto at Woodbine, where we've been back with Racing Night Live working with the good folks at WEG out there, that, uh, you know, there's no fans, so we've now got a drone, we just fly it over the stands that provides spectacular pictures, and you saw that in NASCAR 
where they had a live drone in their coverage because it could kind of fly anywhere because they didn't have to worry about fans. So that adds to the, uh, you know, that adds to the coverage. And, and a lot of people have also said, uh, you know, this will allow you to put cameras in different places. And that's true. But I will say this, that I think the professionals in our business and all sports had already done a pretty good job in placing the cameras in the right positions. So I don't see a lot of movement that way because I think viewers are used to seeing it a certain way. And I do see some sports that, that uh, you know, have tweaked a few things and moved a couple of cameras around. But in general terms, I think you're, you're getting uh, a lot of the same coverage that we, are normally, we normally would expect. I think it goes sport to sport in terms of a fan. I'm not, I'm not going to put my executive producer hat on because I, I don't have one of those. But you know, as a fan, some sports just work really well. I'm, I've, been, I've been relatively happy with, with the NFL. I mean, if I was a sponsor, maybe not so much because those tarps uh, aren't necessarily being shown as much as the sponsors would like. And in the NBA, I mean, getting rid of the courtside seats and putting a camera there, you know, for the odd live action, but mostly replay, it's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, watching the NHL and seeing more of a, you could describe this better than I can, but more of a, a steep wide shot that just wasn't available because you couldn't get the camera that close or else the team wouldn't make any ticket revenue. You know, it was an interesting shot, but, you know, and maybe I'm being overly critical about hockey because I'm Canadian and it's kind of the way we are. But, uh, you know, I thought that uh, it, it, it was tough. It, it was tough to watch that broadcast. I really was missing the fans more than I was in, in, in the NBA. Yeah, it's it's a tough balance. And you you mentioned the, uh, the sponsor tarps and and uh, there's there's you know been many discussions with uh, with leagues on, um, you know, they have to look at revenue clearly without the fans. And so you see particularly in Major League Soccer where they have these massive uh, <clears throat> virtual tarping on the uh, on the empty seats and uh but at the same time uh you know guys are tuning in to watch the game so or to watch the match and so you 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 might slightly adjust your camera angles to help the advertiser but at the same time you can't do that to to anger the viewer so there's a bit of a balance in there that um you know that we try to accommodate everybody with and then you, you talked about some of the new camera angles the 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 lower one in the nba is spectacular but we know that's going away the second they get fans back in the building because they're, you know, they're going to sell that ticket. And, and the same thing would be the NHL um, with the Jitacam arm that they had coming from the ceiling, which provided some unique uh, views. But that camera is just, you know, just too obtrusive. So it's, it's a situation where it'd be blocking out too many paid uh, fans when it does come back. But I think until we, until we figure out what the fan part of all of this becomes, um, you'll see that innovation stay in place and then, um, then it will gradually, uh, probably go somewhere else. So from all indications, it, it, it probably won't be until at least 2022, if then for stadiums to be, you know, anywhere near normal capacity, you know, beyond health concerns that we all have, there also is this emerging and likely compounding economic situation that we expect to unfold and to think that sports properties, advertisers who are heavily invested in sports, and of course, society at large and and their ability to drive the revenue streams to support sports, to think that they're going to be immune to this, you know, is foolish. And so from, from your vantage point, and I realize, you know, you're, you're inside of, of the business right now, and you can't talk as freely as maybe we'd like you to talk, but from your vantage point, from an opinion more so, you know, what do you think can be done to kind of weather what looks like this, this coming storm and... Is it going to be about survival of the fittest, uh, thinking more about properties? Uh, 
Uh, well, good question. And the, the honest answer is, uh, I think most people would give the same answers. We just don't know. Um, and again, you kind of treat it sport by sport and, and, uh, and league by league. It's clear that the NFL has, um, has more money as an example, but at the same time, they have bigger stadiums that are allowing for some fans to come back in, in, in some locations. So there's a bit of cash flow there, if you will. Um, it, it's a real tough one. It's a domino effect right through the lines. I mean, one of the, one of the things that will be interesting as, as this goes on, if it continues to go on is, is what, you know, what, uh, what is the fee placed on rights? Um, and, and what is that going to mean in this whole process? Uh, it's really going to, it's really going to hit home when it, when it starts impacting player salaries. So player salaries are paid based on the health of a business. And if the business is suffering, how is that going to impact player salaries? And I think you've seen a bit of that with the NHL recently and their free agency signings where, where a lot of guys are taking less money just for a year and with the hopes that they'll get more money when the business recovers. So there's just so much unknown out there, but it really impacts so many parts of the business. Um, if advertisers who normally spend can't afford to spend because their business is suffering, you're losing that money. And then, and then you're talking a situation where you're not getting the ticket money and where does sponsorship and, and ad revenue sit in all this and how does it affect our production budgets? And uh, that's a key thing. Our production budgets in most cases are based on, uh, on the amount of economy economics that are brought into that particular property. So if they're suffering, does that mean the production suffers? And ultimately, does that mean the viewers suffer? So there's many, many moving parts. And, um, and I, I, I think that we all hope this would kind of be over by now. Um, but it's clear that it's not a six month thing, that it could very well be a two year thing. And, um, and uh, the good news, apart from the, the rise in COVID, is that I think all organizations, networks, teams, leagues are finding ways to to work within the, the current situation with the hope that it um, it gets better sooner rather than later. Yeah, let's, we're all hoping, Paul, that I mean, th- things come back and, and all these businesses are able to thrive. We, we know as fans, and, and we've had other guests on, on the podcast who are more on the storytelling kind of psychology side of fan engagement, and we just know how important live sports is to all of us. And and while TV is the way that most of us engage, still that opportunity to be in the stands and knowing how important that fan in the stands is to your broadcast, I think even amplifies the importance of it. Like to get back to some kind of normal, uh, I think is is good for the the collective consciousness of, of society. And uh, and we really hope that you get to continue to apply your trade in the way you have for a number of years so that you can help us create more memories. So through kind of the, the backstage project podcast, we deal with some questions like we just did. And then, and then we get into these standard questions, which uh, are really an opportunity for you to dig deep, you know, in, in, in the database and, and, and your history and, uh, and you're not prepared for these. So uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how, how you're going to answer them. So looking back on your career, 40 year, very storied career. If you had to pick one moment that you felt today, you know, was the most memorable over that career, which one would you pick? Well, of course that's a, uh, that's a tough question. Yeah, of course you blindsided me. Good for you. But uh, I would kind of look at it. I would kind of look at it. Um, I, I could answer it a number of ways, but I would, I would give you a couple of quick ones. One would be, it was very cool as an Edmonton guy to be involved in, in producing uh, Wayne Gretzky's last game at Madison Square Garden, and um, and and everything that went around with that, including the um, 
the late night party at top of the World Trade Center that unfortunately went down a year later. Um, but it was it was an amazing thing for me personally to be involved in that. And I think professionally, based on just the amount of of work and the overall challenge, uh, would have been when we we did the World Juniors in Ufa, Russia. And so that was TSN's first foray into um, into deep into Russia. I mean, Ufa is basically a, a two and a half hour plane ride southeast of Moscow, and it involved many trips over there and many sessions of relationship building to uh, to be you know to pull off the host broadcast in a in a foreign country, um, and that being Russia, which you know leads to additional challenges. And being really proud at the end of the day, although Canada didn't do so well, but being really proud at the end of the day that we were able to pull it off. And so those would be the the two that would um, would stand out. There, there's many, and I'm I'm lucky to be able to say that. But those would be the two that would come uh, up first. And and I want to give you the chance to to talk about this because I know we talked about it in the preamble. But uh, so the moment of John Montgomery Whistler, 2010, after winning gold, uh, the walk through the village. Uh, tell us a little more about how that moment came to be that, that pitcher of beer that we've previously talked about on the backstage project podcast. Well, yeah, well that, uh, if I ever do write a book, I mean, that would be, uh, that would be uh, in it for sure. But uh, yeah, there, there's a, there's kind of a cool lead up story to that and a, and a cool ending um, for sure. So the lead up was, and, and um, you know, with, with, and Rick, you know, Rick touched on it on his uh, appearance on your podcast a while back is that uh, we, we had made uh, again, a, many advanced trips to Whistler and and to meet the people their relationship building is is a huge part of it and I remember a few weeks out walking around with um, one of the folks there that was one of the leads in Whistler and uh, and just talking about a whole bunch of things and 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 for me I'd been to Whistler a few times anyways personally and so I knew the the footprint pretty well Um, but walking around and and they they were saying we're gonna put up these big screens around the village kind of like info screens about what's going on and I said, well, so, so can we control those? And, and, uh, and she said, yeah, I mean, just call this number. Like we'll, we'll program, we'll put it, whatever you want to put up there. I go, okay. So I just kind of parked that in the back of my head. Um, and then as, as meetings went on, we, we did have a protocol, um, for safety. Uh, if we were going to bring an athlete onto our main set in the square there where, where Jen Hedger was our host. So, uh, the, the protocol basically was is that the athlete would would win a medal and if we were going to interview them, uh, they would come down in an underground parking uh, garage near our studio uh, and near our control room and uh, and we would meet them there and then we would go down a, a very secure quiet little hallway and then we're in the we're in the bottom of uh, what used to be a, an old ski rental uh, well still is a ski rental place where we set up our control room. And so they could be ushered in nice and, you know, nice and privately and quietly. Um, that's what that would happen when Lindsay Vaughn won her, won her medal, um, escorted her down that hallway into our uh, control room and then up to uh, be interviewed by Jen. But in this case with John, um, you know, I had a pretty good feeling that we could make something special work. And uh, so part of that day was that if, if he wins, here's what we're going to do. So I communicated that to uh to Michelle, our director, and, and um, that we want to take cameras off our set and position them closer to the bottom of the chairlift. And um, so, but the key thing there was that everybody had been briefed that the security protocol can absolutely not be broken. So the athlete has to come down in the SUV and underneath the ground with 
the parking lot. And, in, and so um, others can tell this part of the story, but there was a very heated conversation and perhaps not with proper language uh, between myself and the person at the top of the hill saying that you put him on the chairlift. I don't care if we're breaking the rules, get him on that chairlift, but we're breaking the rules. I don't care, put him on the chairlift. Um, and then, so, so that's what happened. They moved him onto the chairlift. We had our cameras ready. And then I dialed into that number and I said up on the score, you know, on the, on the boards that are around the village, <clears throat> put John Montgomery coming to the village 10 minutes, you know, and to bring the crowd that was, <clears throat> excuse me, all around the village might be unaware that John was coming to the set. So it, uh, <clears throat> it drove a huge amount of the, the, the folks in the population that were in Whistler that time to that area. Um, and then, and then John appears and we had the cameras all set up and we followed the walk. Um, and, and, you know, it led to the one thing that wasn't scripted and all that was the, was the jug of beer. And I think the stories out there, there was a, a woman from London that was just sitting there having a beer and she didn't really know what was going on. And she saw all this excitement and this cheering and just stood up and handed him the picture of the beer. And, uh, and then, so the, the, the follow-up part to that story is that, uh, John's on the set, does the interview, everything's great. Um, and, um, and then now what, you know, there's so many people around them and, and where do we, where do we go from there? So we brought him down to our control room area in a, in a bit of a green room, uh, seating situation. He's got some friends and family there and his, his girlfriend, Darla, soon to be wife. Um, and I think they have two kids now and we wanted to do something nice for him. So we, we got some pizza and some food in and uh, longer story about how we got some, some booze in there. Uh, and had a bit of a party and in the in the process and this kind of goes back to relationship building you know in the process of having a chat with him he mentioned that that he wasn't staying in the olympic village he was actually sleeping in a friend's hut in a backyard and and the reason he was doing that wow. was because he wanted to be with darla and they wouldn't allow her in the village because she was not a even though she she knew skeleton and she was an athlete she wasn't part of the olympics so the night before he won the gold medal, she slept, but they slept together in the back of a buddy's basically shed. Um, and, and that, so I heard that story. And, and again, we had, we had contacts and, and, uh, and Andre over at the, at the Weston hotel nearby, put a call into her and said, Hey, I know there's some empty rooms kicking around, you know, can, what, what do you got? And so she was great. She took it from there, uh, got them a suite, did rose petals and, and put, uh, champagne and a few other things in the room and so we were able to say to john i ran over got the key came back it's like you know what you're not sleeping in the shed tonight and gave him the key so so pretty sure they had a pretty comfy night that night uh, staying a block away at the, at the weston but um you know amazing moment for canadians and uh and and that again will be one of those uh moments that, that stands out in my career for sure no listen that that's amazing for you to have that the you know, think about what, what is going to happen, how things might unfold. I think we talked about this earlier with, with, with Chiz, you know, back uh, a number of months ago when we had him on the podcast and, and we've heard it from, you know, Brian Williams as well, when he was, uh, you know, our, uh, our ringleader and, and our motivator back in the Vancouver games when we worked there, but this concept of, you know, being prepared and expect the unexpected because without the experience that all of you guys have uh, to be able to create an environment to allow stories to play out the way you just described like none of this happens and that's i think that's the magic of of experience being ready to just capture the moment and, and deliver to audience so thank you for that and that's and thank you for sharing it with us here as you as we switch gears a little bit and think about the world as it is today 
there are any number of, of young wannabe executive producers floating around programs all across this country. Uh, there's also, of course, a, a great number of executive producers who don't call themselves that and put content up on YouTube or now TikTok and on, on a regular basis. But thinking about what you do and, and how special it is and how much preparedness and experience and technical knowledge goes into it, plus relationships, what kind of advice do you have for people who are looking to get into the live production business? Uh, well, it's certainly different. Um, again, I, I was lucky. I had a, um, an incredible mentor earlier on my career who was young himself, himself but was was pretty sharp still. This is John Shannon. And and John was was able to share a lot of stuff with me, and I was able to watch him. Um, and, and one of the things that that always stood out was was hard work and 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 be prepared and and don't be afraid to take a chance. And so I kind of would say those three things right off the bat to anybody wanting to get into the business. But it is a different business, and and the business has evolved uh, so much from when I started to what it is today. Uh, technology clearly has played a big part of that. Budgets obviously have played a big part of that. And and I think it's one of those things where the the business that I spent so much time in is has, has really changed. I, I feel a little bit sorry for the new people coming in because I can guarantee you um, they won't have as much fun as we had, um, but they're going to find their own way to do things differently and, and to experience things differently. But, but again, I, you know, it, it's, it's a different business. There's um, people watch, um, you know, things look for a shorter period of time. So it's, you know, you see so many technologies out there where just give me the quick fix. Um, you know, people don't tune into the TV every night to watch the news. They get it. They've already got it in most cases from other sources. And so the business has really changed. And, and, but I think the one thing that, that we've seen that, that has, has uh, withstood the test of time recently is the live sporting event and sports. And, and that still to this point remains that one great thing that, that people want to watch because they know it's now, they know it's live. Um, it's not a tape program or show that they can watch pretty much at any time on demand. So um, it's, it's a tough question. I would just, I would, I would still really, you know, stick with the basics is, is, you know, don't be afraid to take a chance. And the other, the other thing I would say is that um, people in management and people in, in my roles, we don't always know everything and we don't always know everyone in the sense that people that are, are around us. And I remember looking up to people in, in, in higher positions when I was younger and wondering, do they, you know, they even know I exist and do they even know I'm around and, and I'm a pretty good person. And I think I could help them out, but they would never know. So I would say, speak up and introduce yourself and don't be shy. And, uh, and you know, that those are the guys you end up or you know, guys and girls and, and men and women that you end up remembering. Um, is people that actually took the time to introduce themselves to you and, and took the time to, um, um, to, to say a few words about themselves. And at the same time, in my position, I have to make sure I'm listening and, and continuing to learn so I can help them somewhere down the road as well. So that's, that's amazing advice. And um, it, it's great to know that someone, you know, with your experience and, and your seniority at, you know, most successful sporting venture in Canada, uh, still has that mentality of, you know, introduce yourself. That's, uh, that's great advice. As our last question for today, um, wanted you to think uh, over the 40 years, I know how tough it is to do that in a fraction of a second. Um, but think about some things that, um, or one thing in particular 
that uh, you know today kind of comes a second nature to you, kind of how you how you interpret a situation or think through a problem that early in your career, you know, just just couldn't be overcome, something you struggled with. Uh, well, another good question. Um, I, I I think when you're when you're starting out producing, uh, I mean. One of the good things in my career is I, I did a bunch of other things before I got to sit in the chair. So I had a bit of a background in, in graphics and technical and camera work. And um, I mean, I used to sweep floors for SCTV back in the day. So um, and it all came in handy later on. And uh, I'm pretty good at sweeping floors. But in any event, uh, you know, when you when you're when you finally get to, to sit into that to the big chair when you're producing and it's live I mean you don't get a chance to get to take anything back it's already out so you can't you can't say I want it back because you've already watched it at home on your couch and uh, I think as your career progresses um, there there's so many things you don't know you're continually learning and there was that there was that one moment in my um, you know my career where it all slowed down for me where I could then take in all this this information that was coming in and and just started to make better decisions and, and do a better job because I had enough reps to, to make it work. Um, and one of the things that I focused on earlier, which may or may not have been a mistake, was, was almost everything else um, except the talent because you had so many other things to make sure that, that, that you know, worked that sometimes you just forgot that the talent also needed um, some information and some coddling and some communication. And that's one thing I learned sort of halfway through my producing career was to, was to spend some serious time with the talent and making sure that your vision was their vision or there was a, uh, you know, a collective vision. And so um, again, you know, information that I would share with people starting out is, is it's one thing to organize everything and make sure it all goes there properly. But the guys that, that the people at home really only know are the guys that are in front of the camera, the guys speaking to you. They have no clue who the heck we are putting the show together. So make sure that, um, that your talent's on side with your plan and, and make sure they're part of the team. And I think that uh, that goes a long way to, uh, to making a great production. Well, thank you for that terrific answer. And it was a great segue into kind of wrapping up our time today. I mean, what you just described about getting to know the people behind the scenes and having them prepare the people who are front of house, the honor talent. I mean, that's why we created this podcast. So we can tell, tell your stories that are, that are super important because we, we always see those people in front of the camera, but we really just don't understand enough about what happens behind the scenes. But this you know hour that we spent with you, we'll see how long it ends up being when we, when Andrew gets his hands on, on the edit, but this has been a great, learning curve uh, for me to understand things that I just didn't appreciate till today. So I'm super glad that you took the time out of what I could imagine is a ridiculously busy schedule uh, to join us. Appreciate that, Mark. And, and uh, next time uh, we do this, let's talk some more CFL and hopefully they're back playing soon. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.